Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on Nick Polizzi. Nick has spent his career directing and producing feature-length documentaries about natural alternatives to conventional medicine. I first became aware of his work through his 2011 film, The Sacred Science, which chronicles the real-life journey into the heart of the Amazon of eight medically compromised individuals looking for alternatives to the modern medicines that failed them. Nick's work stems from a calling to honor, preserve, and protect the ancient knowledge and healing technologies of the ancient world. I hope you enjoy our talk. What's going on? Not too much. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Happy to be here. Uh, it's, great to, it's great to have you, and it's great to meet you. Um, I love the professional setup they have behind you. It looks very, uh, looks very well staged. <laughs> it's a total, this is a total set. This is like, absolutely. My life is such a, it's, my life's upside down. I have two small children. So I have a little set in my basement for stuff like this. I do from home. Oh, amazing. So um, how old are your kids? If you don't mind me asking. Uh, I have a three and a half year old and an eight year old, both boys. Oh, so what's the last year been like? <laughs> you know what, man? We bought an RV uh, over the summer. So we turned lemon into lemons into lemonade. It was like pretty awesome. We spent two months. I think I slept 50 days in my RV last summer. So that was pretty sweet. But this whole school thing is no bueno. Not, yeah. not fun for us. Yeah. Where are you based? I'm sorry. Boulder. Oh, wow. It, Tough yeah. It's, it's pretty hectic here right now. Yeah. Um, are you, you and yours okay? Like, did you have any connection to what happened or? We didn't. It's really, I mean, the closest connection I had is our next door neighbor. They have, they have a bunch of kids and, and, um, their oldest son is he works at that King super, but he wasn't there, but that was uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty real. Like people think that Boulder's a bubble, you know? Um, yeah. And uh, it's cool because it used to be, I mean, I, I lived in Colorado about 15 years ago. Um, since then we moved to California, then moved back. But it used to be that this was such a white town, you know, it was like, you, you come here, it was just like everybody, it was, everybody was, was basically white and privileged, even like the homeless folks. It was like, it was kind of cute. It's like, yeah, you're not really like doing that bad. Now it's actually starting to get more diverse. It's pretty great. Um, so in a lot of ways, it's like, it's really becoming an awesome, an awesome town and, and definitely not a bubble anymore. You know, it's definitely moving that direction, but this is one of those situations where it's like, you start, you know, starting to realize it really is no longer, you know, this, this, um, this tiny little enclave. It's definitely, definitely a place that anything can happen. You know, yeah, all the troubles, know, it's not immune from the troubles of the world, which is honestly, in a lot of ways, it's great, but obviously what happened a couple of days ago, that's tragic. And it, it's such a small community. It's a hundred thousand people, I think in this city. And that seems like a lot, I guess, obviously you, you guys are, are you in New York? I'm actually uh, just outside of Seattle. Oh, cool. I used to live there. I love Seattle. Oh, I'm in um, Normandy Park. I don't know if that means anything to you. Um, I don't know. Nor I, is, that, is that east of Seattle? It's just south. So it's basically uh, halfway between Seattle and Tacoma, but on the sound. So if you went south on I-5, it's between uh, Burien and Des Moines. Okay, cool. Yeah, but on the I water. I lived in Queen. I chased a girl out to Seattle in my like, early 20s. Lived in Queen Anne, lived in Capitol Hill, had friends out in Kirkwood. 
um, yeah. Anyway, I, I know the general, I know the city area more sure. than the outskirts, yeah. but yeah, I mean, you know, it's a hundred thousand people here and, um, it seems like that's quite a few people, but you could just feel the ripple. Everybody knows everyone's connected to this in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you said that you, <laughs> that you had an RV, I thought you were going to say, and I took off and, <laughs> and left the wife and kids home for, <laughs> I mean, listen, one can dream. One can dream. Yeah, I, I'd imagine there's been plenty of escape fantasies for all of us over the last 12 months. Um, yeah. It's tricky. It, it's like we've done really well. And then somehow magically in the last month and a half, like the pressure cooker has been turned up. I think people are at this point over it. Like, it's like we've been doing this. It's been a year now. I have a year. My, my fuse is about a year long. I'm pretty good. But I mean, it's like at this point, especially because we have kids, you know, and I, I see my oldest one. We don't need to go too far into this, but my oldest one is suffering. Like I, I can just see it. You know, schools here are closed. They're open, closed. He was in public school, open and closed. And then we just were like, you know what? Screw this. Like we're going to homeschool you for the time being so that you don't have like, you know, because there'd be a COVID outbreak and then they'd close and kids would get scared. We're like, we're just going to do this from home for, for the time being. But, you know, kids want to be around kids and they want to have that autonomy. And he's, you could just see it. Like he's, he's suffering. Like he's got little ticks he's developing and I'm trying to figure out how to like pretty much break him out of that. So we're tomorrow we're hopping in the RV heading out to Southwest Utah for like, you know, to hang out in the canyons for about a week just to kind of get him out of this, you know, out of this pressure cooker. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of people who, um, you know, whose kids were otherwise doing fine in school, or maybe they weren't doing fine, but they had sort of just regular developmental situations that were going to get worked out as part of being socialized and around kids. And this last year is just, it's all, all kinds of things have emerged. And uh, I, I really feel for really the, the kids of all ages, like if you're a teenager, this has to suck. If you're six years old, this has to suck. I can't imagine, you know, if your only experience of going to school for the first time has been through this, like there's just, uh, I don't know. It's tough. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah. It'll put hair on our chest, though. <laughs> at, at eight years old. <laughs> <laughs> hey. <laughs> or, or maybe what's in all the milk and the dairy products, Will. I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. Don't even get me started. I'm, I'm like a natural health guy, so I, 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 there's so many rabbit holes there. Yeah. So, um, so let's start there. Tell me a little bit about um, what is it that you do? Sort of tell, tell our listeners, um, you know, what, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> my name is Nick Polizzi. Uh, so what do I do? I, my whole path started the path, I guess my professional path started with me coming out of college, living in New York city and, and getting sick when I was in my early twenties. Um, I come from a family of, of nurses. Uh, so the, my illness had to do was a neurological illness. And so they first, the first course of action was, Hey, Nick, let's get you into some of the best neurologists and the best doctors in Connecticut and New York did that. Didn't work. They prescribed a bunch of medicines. I mean, you know, they were very well-intended, very nice people, but the medicines they were prescribing me weren't working. Um, and my condition got worse and it started affecting my ability to live a normal life. And out of desperation, I began looking at alternatives, not because I ever, I was raised hippie or raised granola or anything. I just had no other options. Modern medicine had quote unquote failed me. And so by doing that um, and out of, you know, out of necessity, I started trying anything and realized over the course of the next year, you know, that there's a lot more out there than what I was told there was um, in the alternative and natural health space. So 
Um, long story short, within like a year, I had pretty much reversed the condition uh, using alternative methods. And I realized that I wanted to, I mean, this was, I felt like I had been lied to almost, or that something had been taken from me or withheld from me. So I think like a lot of people, when you kind of have that eureka moment, then you now realize what your calling is. Your calling is to help spread the word about this thing. So I've been doing that for the last 15 years. Um, my medium is documentary filmmaking. And uh, most recently, um, actually kind of in tandem with our current documentaries, I've written a few books. So I guess technically speaking, I'm an author and a filmmaker, but more than anything, I'm just a human being who like everyone else has suffered in some way. And I found an answer that really helped me. So I've been sort of championing um, that realm of healing for a long time. Mm, all right. Thank you for that sort of context and that level setting. Um, I have to ask when you were first exploring um, alternative treatments for yourself, um, what were the resources that were available at that time? And did you have, um, was it complete self-discovery or did you have um, a teacher or, you know, a guide through all this? Could you talk a little bit about th how that unfolded? Yeah. So that was probably, let's say that was like 2006. So internet is still, internet's available, but it's still very young. Um, the health and wellness space is not anything like what it is now. It's still kind of very fringe. There's no whole foods or anything like that. You can kind of chart the, the progress of the health and wellness space by how many whole foods are pl planting their flags and sprouting up everywhere. Um, there was probably one or two in the country at that point, I bet you. Maybe one in Austin and maybe a couple on the coasts. Um, so I started, I lived in Brooklyn at the time, and I started walking down the street to the natural health food stores, the mom and pop shops. There's tons of them um, in Brooklyn and, and Manhattan, all over New York. Um, uh, so I started going into those places and just asking them like, Hey, what, what do you, what do you have for these symptoms? And you know, those places are really cool. Like the people who run those places um, tend to be very well educated, very well read. And a lot of them are, are, you know, uh, practitioners in their own right and educated in you know, naturopathy or anything like that, chiropractic. And so I started turning to the people, like the behind the counter gurus that were like, Hey, try this out and also read these three books. So a lot of reading, a lot of visiting different shops, um, going to yoga classes, just trying to do anything I could to balance myself out. I, I had a couple really great teachers, um, that one of them, who's like my, he's like my age. And I, he's one of my best friends who was into, a certain type of technique to help himself because he had really terrible, terrible allergies growing up. And there was no, again, no answer. You start finding this when you look at any natural health guru or most of them, they're wounded. We, what we would call wounded healers, people who have themselves been sick, who healed themselves using, using alternative methods and then became, you know, um, somebody who wanted to spread that with the world. So he had healed his migraines. Um, sorry. He had healed his allergies and also his insomnia using a technique um, called emotional freedom technique um, EFT, um, it's, you tap on different meridian points using, you know, it's, it's kind of combines, um, Chinese medicine, ancient Chinese medicine with talk therapy. Um, and so he started getting me into that, but once I got into that, it's like a rabbit hole. You start doing one thing and it kind of works and you start looking for more. And so ultimately the biggest teacher I've ever had, who's still one of my teachers, it's weird. Cause he's also one of my good buddies as well as a shaman from down in the Peruvian Amazon. His name is Roman Hannes. And he is the person who taught me how to revision the way I viewed myself and also the way I view my disease and also pretty much any life challenge that comes my way and how to transmute that into an opportunity for learning and transformation and ultimately transcendence. Mm -hmm. Can you, um, can you unpack that concept a little bit? What does that mean? 
What does that mean? Yeah, I so so there's all kinds of tricky things that come along with an illness, right? I mean, you have your illness, and it does give you um, it 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 presents you with challenges, and those aren't fun. Uh, and and we obviously want to get rid of those challenges and, and figure out a way to overcome those challenges. But a lot of times we get stuck in this pattern of belief that keeps us keeps us in that that illness state. And I'm I, I'm not a doctor, and I'm not trying to give medical advice. I'm just saying this is much more of a philosophical kind of spiritual concept. But it really helps. It's helped me, and it's helped a lot of people I know. Is to start and start looking at your illness as a signal. Um, being sent from your body that something's out of whack that not that the disease itself is the ultimate end uh, end point of of your journey but that it's just a it's a sign that something in your body is out of whack and it's it's an invitation for further explanation or exploration into yourself into into the way you're relating to yourself your environment your relationships what you're putting into your body um, thoughts that you're holding, traumas that you might I mean, tra- trauma is at the core of a lot of this stuff. When you start digging into a lot of this, the types of illnesses that I have um, and that a lot of people have, a lot at the core of illness, a lot of times you'll find unresolved trauma. Um, so it's an invitation to stop, to, to not look at your illness as like the end all of what you're going through. It's just a label. It's one of many ways of, of referring to something um, using words, um, but that it's much more complex than that. We like to, you know, the modern, modern medicine's amazing. I mean, I wouldn't, my first son wouldn't be here if it wasn't for modern medicine. Um, uh, there's a, a number of different things that have happened in my life that would really not have, not have worked out if it wasn't for modern medicine, but there's, there's part, there's things that it's good at and things that it's not that great at. And um, most doctors at this point will tell you, we're not that great at treating chronic illness. We're just not, we're great. We're, this is great heroic emergency medicine. It's great. If you fall apart, if Humpty Dumpty falls off the wall, then you're not going to fix that with a cup of herbal tea. You know, that's, that's something you go to the hospital for, but when it comes to chronic illness, things that develop over time and slow, very slowly over time that oftentimes don't have a concrete answer there. This is not a place where modern medicine is thriving. It's a place where lifestyle medicine seems to be the answer right now. So we, I guess the, what I've learned from Roman is to not sit there and take my diagnosis as, Oh, this is what it is. And this is what it'll always be. It's more like, no, this is, this is what you're going through. And now let's start teasing out the different sensations that are going on in your body and the different, the different, um, nuances in your reality that and start start getting an idea of how those might be impacting you in a way that would potentially create some type of a symptom like this so it's more like taking it's just health sovereignty taking control back over your health um, and realizing that illnesses and also any life challenges life's challenges oftentimes have wisdom for you and so in the jungle i'll, I'll stop here because i could go off on a tangent but the, in, the, in the Amazon, there, uh, there's a couple different tribes that we've worked with that, that view diseases as mothers. And it's a really strange thing for Westerners to hear that idea. But they look at illness as, you know, the, the disease, the, diseased, um, the, the spirit of that disease becomes impregnated with you. And so when, they, when that person, when that disease becomes impregnated with you, you experience these symptoms. Inside the womb of that disease, there's all kinds of things for you to learn. And you're going to be birthed out no matter what, it's just about what, where you're going to be birthed after you go through that experience. If you learn all the lessons that there are to learn, if you, if you really want to engage with the illness and understand the lessons it has to teach you, you'll be rebirthed back into this life as a new person with a lot of wisdom um, and a lot of new skill sets. If you don't want to learn, you're going to be rebirthed, but not into this life. You know, you'll be rebirthed into the next one. So it's a weird concept. A lot of people think that it's very, you know, especially if you're um, super religious, you might look at that as something that, that would offend, um, 
offend your the sensibilities of, of your particular um, your particular religion. But a lot of people, especially people who are sick, when they hear that and they go and we can go even deeper into it, there's something empowering there. It's mm-hmm. it's instead of sitting there and, be, and becoming the victim. And there's all kinds of what we call what we would call secondary gains, which is like there's secondary benefits to being a victim. You know, if you have this illness and it's such a pain in the ass then it's very easy for you to do, for you to, for you to start gleaning these secondary gains and start using that as leverage, social leverage, you know, in, in many different ways. So if you stop looking at yourself as the victim and start realizing this could just be another, another lesson, it's another chapter that you need to read very thoroughly and, and, and distill some of the, some of the inner, you know, the, the more deeper teachings from, then a lot of times the illness goes away and you're left off with um, a lot more than you started with. If you're if you're comfortable doing so, I'd love to talk about some of like the social or historical uh, background to some of these concepts. Um, And I'm curious, sort of disease as metaphor, it sounds like a little bit of what you're talking about, um, or, or modality for exploration. Where did that develop? Like culturally? Is that just from people who lived a more observational lifestyle who were able to tease this wisdom out, you know, and and, and sort of a corollary to that. I know that I'm asking a lot in one question, but maybe thematically for the next few minutes, we could talk about this. And what was lost in the Western world or when did, when did sort of person as object become the metaphor? You know, could you talk a little bit about that? Like what, what, how did we get it? And then how did we lose it? <laughs> yeah, I think that we had it for a long time. I mean, I can't go back. One of my favorite things to do is to try to go back as far into history as I possibly can, where there's anything reason- reasonably uh, scientific that, like, that can be proven, you know, about what we were doing six, seven, eight thousand years ago. Um, but it seems like this is something that we that that something very interesting that happens when you start investigating shamanic cultures around the world is that you realize that the you know, the, some of the tribes in the Amazon have very similar practices to some of the Aboriginal peoples in Australia and some of the, you know, the, the tribes in Siberia, like they, there seems to be this, and this is very woo-woo and I'm not, I'm, I really like to think of myself as a, sci- a science-based person. I don't tend to do things that I can't prove or that don't have studies behind them. But something that I've noticed is that there's a lot of things that, that, are, ref- that are reflected in cultures that have never had contact with each other. It's almost like there's like a natural connection. There's a natural um, there's a natural set of laws that we as humans kind of know, you know, as, as part of just our, just our, this innate part of who we are as, as human beings on this planet. Um, and so I don't, I just, I wonder if it's something that we, that only certain people have known or if it's something that we've all kind of at some point in our history have known about, but have forgotten about as we've kind of come through um, different, uh, different phases of our, of our development. I mean, it's easy. It's, it's tempting to kind of go off and talk about the fact that we live in a patriarchal society and it wasn't always that way. And before it became that way, which is kind of, kind of coincides with the rise of agriculture. Um, if you've, if you've read any of Jared Diamond's books or you saw a lot, there's a lot of great, a lot of great books coming out to talk about sort of that, you know, the, the, you know, the, the rise of an agrarian society and how it really does coincide with, you know, the the male energy as being the dominant energy. It wasn't always that way. I mean, you know, the goddess worship was, was a thing that was, you know, pretty much prevalent across the Mediterranean, not, not that long ago. These societies that still practice these things are all matriarchal societies. I mean, 
I could, I, I think I could check myself there and say, I don't think, I don't think there's anything off in that statement. I think any society that's still practicing this type of medicine and this type of healing and this type of awareness about who we are as spiritual, physical, mental beings is, is a matriarchal society. Um, I think that there, it, it would be hard to separate, you know, that fact from this equation. You know, I think that there's something there for sure. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the rise of agriculture, I, I was sort of first introduced to the, the concept of the rise of agriculture being sort of the breaking point or the shifting point through, uh, through Daniel Quinn and his writings, Ishmael in particular, but then a bunch of other, you know, subsequent both yeah. fiction and nonfiction that he wrote. Um, I, I just, I feel like he's a very underrated philosopher of our time um, and, and sort of thinker about um it's, and it's hard to use, it's hard to use non-loaded or judgmental words, but it's hard to not view it as sort of the fall or where we went wrong culturally and culture really being the, um, you know, being the word for like what, what the shift was. And, uh, and so, you know, you talk about, you talk about sort of going as far back as possible. Do you theorize at all? You know, was it, was it because we came from sort of the same cradle and people dispersed. Was it some cultural memory or, 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 you know, embedded memory, you know, do, do you have a, do you have a take as to, as to why these seemingly dispersed peoples um, have similar practices and thoughts? Well, I think that where we are today to trace it back there, you know, when you look at the rise of agriculture, you also look at a corresponding distrust of nature. You're learning, you're, you know, we're learning how the cycles work. We're learning how to plant. We're learning what you need to do to survive. We're learning to, you know, we're starting to pay attention to what we need to do to tame nature and to overcome nature. I and mean, if you look at old, you know, old fairy tales, like nature is a scary thing. Na you know, you walk into the woods, so you're not going to come back out again. Like it's a, that kind of a, that kind of a, of a, of a relationship with nature seems to arise as we start getting better at surviving. I mean, get surviving and, 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 you know, reproducing at mass scale. Um, so I don't know that there's, I guess I'll answer your question in a second, but I don't know that anything's really right or wrong. I just, I think that we've gotten really good at, at doing certain things. We've gotten very good at surviving and there's been amazing things that have come, come about because of that, but we have sort of started treating nature as something to dominate. Um, as opposed to some, as opposed to something to learn from. And I think that part of that nature is our own human nature. Um, and, and you could also go very literally into, you know, the actual healing plant. But what brought me down to the Amazon rainforest is the fact that, you know, one of the first films I made was called the sacred science. We brought eight patients from around the world down to the middle of the Amazon and they healed themselves using plants. But the reason why it was so interesting was because a, there's a thriving shamanic culture there. Um, uh, which is one of the oldest, one of the oldest practices, one of the oldest professions that we know of. Aside, you know, I think it's you know, healer, priest, and prostitute are like the three, the, the two oldest professions that we are aware of. Um, uh, and there's a, there's a thriving, thriving shamanic culture there, but there's also um, this pharmacopoeia of when we looked at it, it was it was it was jaw dropping at sixty thousand potential medicinal plants in the Amazon that have been unstudied. Um, now it's up to, even though the Amazon is burning as we speak, it's continuing to go up. It's over 100,000 species of medicinal plants that have not been studied. So what brought us to the Amazon was, was this, this culture that has, that's known to be um, 
it's known to have some highly beneficial spiritual practice, um, sorry, healing practices, but it's, it's supported by this crazy, this crazy garden of, of healing plants that only, only the shamans and the healers know anything about, but that's what you would find anywhere. I mean, if you, if you go to, if you go to Australia, it's the same thing. They just have, they just have a, a much, a much slender pickings for, for their healing plants, but they know all of them and they know how to harness those. Um, if you go to Siberia, same thing, even slimmer pickings, but they know how to harness them. Um, I think this is just logical. I mean, this is just a logical way for us to interact with our environment. I think that, you know, when you, you're living in the forest, you're going to learn by trial and error how to, how to use those plants. And I think that's just exactly what these people have done. The thing that I think is starting to become more apparent is that we've exploited and systematically erased, erased them as being, um, being relevant to our modern world, even though we're sicker than we've ever been. And more and more people are starting to venture back into these places to try and figure out what may have been forgotten or what they might know or still know that hasn't been completely obliterated. Yeah. Have you ever witnessed or uh, either firsthand or just in other, you know, books or what have you, have you ever witnessed um, a confluence of representatives from different shamanic cultures meeting and talking or sharing their sort of ideas and philosophies and. Oh yeah. <laughs> Could you talk a little? I mean, I, I, just to just to expound on your point that there's a commonality. Um, yeah. What's what happens when you take someone from the Amazon and someone an Aboriginal and someone from Siberia and they sit down and have a conversation? <laughs> it's uh, inspiring and also slightly terrifying to be in the room when that's going on because. It's, it's really inspiring because they see eye to eye and they all see, they all see each other and they all understand, you know, it's very easy to kind of understand, you know, and get on the same wavelengths. It's terrifying because, especially as a filmmaker, I mean, I'm a gringo. I'm like, I'm like the, I'm like the exact wrong looking person to be trying to do this. I'm like, I look like Cortez, you know what I mean? It's like, I, I don't look like the person that should be. So as a, as a white male, you know, <laughs> from Connecticut, um, it's very, it's, it's a little bit terrifying because I, I know that it's like, especially cause I have a film crew there. It's oftentimes it's, I'm invited into, you know, these ceremonies where it's like, it's a definite, it's a nice invitation, but it's also like uh, who the hell are you? Like, let's, let's, let's see what you're all about kind of a thing. So I've had some, I've had some times with these, at these, um, at these meetings, um, where gatherings I've been to the, I've, oftentimes are called gatherings, um, where I've been invited to, into some pretty serious ceremonies, um, probably the probably the most uh, terrifying of which wasn't even an ayahuasca or a plant medicine ceremony, but it was just a serious sweat lodge. That was like, I don't know if you've ever been in a, 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 a real sweat lodge before, but like, especially when you have el elders there that are all like, they've been doing this for like 80 years. It's almost impossible to stay in there. It's like so hot. It's, it's, impo it's, it's incredible that they can do it. It's inspiring. But you know, as a, as a, a quote unquote newbie, I, I can, I'm holding on for dear life a lot of the time. So um, yeah, I, I've been there when, when different, you know, for these gatherings where different tribes from around the world are, are meeting and sharing ideas and trying to understand how they can, how we can come together to like right the wrongs and kind of put the earth back on its axis. Um, but I can't really get past the, the fear that I usually have of being invited, which always happens into something that's very uncomfortable. I mean, it's very, very transformative, but very terrifying. Is there 
a ritualized, for lack of a better way to say it, is there a ritualized hazing or screening process that these cultures share in common? Or, or to say it slightly different, how do they protect themselves from, mm -hmm. from not necessarily you, but to your point, like what, what you represent? How do they, how do they have um, an openness with wanting to share their experience with the greater world while at the same time protecting themselves from exploitation? Is there a, is there a methodology for that that they have? Unfortunately, there's not a shared methodology across every culture. And this, this is, I mean, I'm speaking based on my experience um, here. Certain cultures have become very good at keeping us out. And I would say probably no culture better or no, no system of culture of subcultures better than right here in the United States. The first people of the United States, people think that that tradition is, is all but dead. Wrong. Like it's not, that's not the way it is at all. Um, they've gotten very good at understanding what we want and, and what we're willing to do to get what we want. And therefore those cultures are extremely protected. They still exist. Um, you know, I've been on uh, medicine walks, um, you know, with, with healers and elders where it's been told to me like, Hey, you know, we're going to show you this. If we ever find out that you shared this, you'll have all of us on you. You know, so it's that kind of a thing where it's very guarded here. Um, in the Amazon, it's a little less guarded and you get to, and you, and you get to watch firsthand how and it's not, it's, it can be tragic to watch firsthand how they're treated and how their traditions are exploited because they seem to still have that. Um, they're still slightly naive when it comes to this. Like they, they're, they're not aware of the world stage as much as let's say the first peoples of the United States are. Um, they're not aware of a lot of things that have happened um, and, and how in danger their traditions are. So they'll share you, they'll share everything with you sometimes. And it's like, man, you got to protect this a little bit better. A lot of the, mm -hmm. a lot of the, the tribes in Ecuador and Colombia have gotten better about that. Um, and now it's becoming a little bit more locked down. And I, I'm happy when it is. And I'm happy when somebody says, Hey, I can't show you that. Like I'd rather just stay that way. Um, because I don't think that they, that they can or should trust the rest of the world with their traditions. Historically, it's been a very bad idea. Yeah. So um, I think that it's more, you can see varying stages of it. And some cultures, unfortunately, never, never protected it in time and are, and are pretty much gone at this point, you know? Um, Whether within their own culture or when, when outsiders want to come in, is there, um, do they follow um, an initiatory process? Like is the, or is it, is that too broad of a question? Is it, does it vary by? No, I, I think it probably varies based on individual. Um, for me, I, I did. When I, was, when I was going down in the jungle, like I sat through some pretty harrowing um, ceremonies, uh, just especially because I wasn't just going down there to learn for myself. I was going down there with a full film crew. So it's, yeah. uh, to get in and to get access, it's like they want to, again, they, they want to see who you are. And uh, it might on the outside look like hazing. And I'm sure there is a little bit of that just to kind of make sure that you really want it. You know, the same way like Mr. Miyagi would probably haze, you know, um, whoever the Karate Kid's first name was. Um, but uh, I think that there's also something more to it because I, in those ceremonies, for example, um, ayahuasca, we've all heard about ayahuasca at this point. It gives the, the, the person who, who drinks it the ability to connect with other people in the circle on a deeper level. Some people call it telepathically. Um, you know, it depends on who you are and what your experience was and what you believe in, but they certainly believe that it, it allows for this, this hive mind to happen. So more than just a hazing process, I think that a lot of these ceremonies 
are there to help them connect to you and really get an idea of who you are. Because when you're, when you've got a lot of baggage and you're there for the wrong reasons, it's very obvious in in an intense ceremony like that. It it all comes out. It's a truth serum. Um, And maybe that's where your healing begins. And maybe that's where you get that you get a second chance because you've now shown everyone your cards. And like, maybe, maybe now you can actually understand why you're actually there. The thing that the thing that people get caught up in is they think that plant medicine ceremonies are the, are, you know, maybe not everyone gets caught up in this, but some people think that plant plant medicine ceremonies are the only way to get there. They're the only way to like get to that place where you've, you've shed every, every bit of the onion skin and it's just your soul sitting there in the darkness. But, you know, when you go around the world and you see the different, the different practices, there's every one of these traditions has some practice where it intensity is intentionally turned up on you. Now it could be through a plant medicine or it could be through temperature. It could be through this. It could be through a sweat, sweat lodge. I sat through harrowing ayahuasca ceremonies, nothing even close to as terrifying and as transformative and hallucinatory as really intense sweat lodges. Um, so I think they all have this practice. And yes, there, there could be a hazing to it, but I think it also by turning up the intensity on, on everyone in that space, including the new initiate, they're able to see you and you're able to see them. So I think that there's a spiritual component to this as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like the, the, maybe the Western proponent or, or maybe a mainstream proponent that, that I think brought that concept to us might be somebody like a Ram Das, right? Like talking about what he got through his spiritual practice and meditation. What is what allowed him to sort of, it's what it's the insight he got from psychedelics and said, okay, that's one way. And then there's this other way. And some people need the sort of shock to the system or the express route um but that's that's just the first way and then they can go take this sort of deeper more meaningful long-term approach or exploration so i'm so happy that you mentioned rob das it's like i've I've been on a rob das kick lately um he has a great talk i was listening to it last night while i was working out it's called it's from the in the early 80s he was in rare form like he and fortunately they had bhs tapes or betamax tapes or something back then but they were filming it and it's like the best Ram Das, in my opinion, is that point in time when he's still a pretty young man. He looks, you know, he's, he's probably like in his mid to late forties, maybe early fifties, but he's, he's now, he's now back from India. He's done all that work. And now he, but he still has that New Yorker kind of like attitude. And he's, there, there's a great talk uh, from 1983 called standing room only by Ram Das that really does kind of go into a lot of this stuff, a lot of the underlying, you know, themes here for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I read an interview or reread an interview with him that I had read probably 25 years ago. And I just came across the book again where um, he talks a lot about, you know, the um, the contradiction between, you know, his time in India and the lessons there and sort of the asceticism of, of that lifestyle. And then basically being a rich celebrity here at home. Yeah, exactly. And and he has he just has such a great attitude. Like he he, he does. He doesn't seek to like explain or justify it. You know, it's like, Hey, that this is, I, I, I give talks and I write books about these topics and they make me wealthy. <laughs> well, and, and, and nothing, and his, his lifestyle didn't really contradict what he, what he spoke about. He didn't, he doesn't say he's like, he's like, you know, when, when people, when you look at a bunch of, at a bunch of, um, of people who are, Oh, what's the word he was using? celibate he's like when you look at a bunch of people who are who are celibates he's like, you know in reality you have a bunch of horny celibates like they're not they're not really doing it they're not really getting there they're just on the face of it they're sort of doing something he sort of feel i felt like at least 
toward the middle of his career or mid middle end of his career, he sort of accepted the idea that I'm not trying to abstain or I'm not trying to tell people or judge people or be righteous, but you just understand at all times that you are not who you think you are. <laughs> like you're not who you think you are. There's no place for you. You know, there's no place to stand. There's no place to, um, there's no one or two. There's a zero. Like you know, basically you are, you are, you looking out. It's only this. So yeah, I mean, it's getting rid of all that belief, all those belief systems, including all these spiritual ones that can be just as burdensome as, you know, any other belief system that might be foisted upon you. He's just kind of was like this free spirit. Like I'm the creator. Like I'm, I'm the creator. I've been created. So are you. And let's just have fun. It felt very playful, you know? Yeah. It's funny you use that word. Cause as you were speaking, I was thinking when I think of him, I think of like a laugh. Yeah. It's just, it's just a big laugh. And, and underlined by, you know, they're very serious matters, right? Like, you know, it's, it has to do with our really, you know, our, our, our personal fate, <laughs> but, uh, or at least our experience on this trip through. And, uh, but it's, it's, it's all, it's all just a big laugh. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what else to say about it. Well, no, um, <laughs> what's nice about Ram too, is like, there's a lot of people these days who are disenfranchised. They, they were raised a certain way. They, I, I was raised Christian. Um, I don't have those beliefs anymore, you know? Um, and so there, some people, a lot of people who are disenfranchised these days, you know, they were raised a certain way and they're starting to, you know, they're starting to lean a different way, but there's not a, there's not a catching mitt for them. Like they don't, they don't really know where to go, but Rom's a great one. Cause he kind of, he kind of speaks to everybody. Like he's not, it's not like, Hey, abandon that religion. And now, now get into this one. Like, cause shop, even shamanism, some of these indigenous cultures, like they have their own, their own structure where it can be very easy to just give up, you know, give up the, you know, have the, have the prison, the prison door open up over here, then walk out into the next one over here. That looks like this, that looks like something brand new and great, but it's really the same thing dressed up in different clothes. You know, um, the thing with him is he's like, no, wait, stop. Don't go anywhere. Just let me have you for a second. Like, here's what, here's the, Here's the matrix. Like, let me take you 10,000 feet up so you can see that you're really on a big island, right? This is a big island you're on. You're not going to, I just, I think that people like him, it's so spacious. You know, I, I like spacious teachings like that. It, it feels like it, 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 you can understand it on a, on a soul level. You're like, it feels right. And there's no one really trying to get you to do anything. It's just, it's all about freedom. Yeah. Well, and so, something I, I, I admire about him, and I don't know if this is part of the myth making or if, you know, he, it, it's a retroactive telling of the tale, but, you know, he had, he could have stayed at Harvard. It sounds like that it, it was a very, it almost came down to a very specific moment in time when sort of Leary in particular, when they were all sort of called to the carpet and he was sort of given the chance to, to sort of not betray Leary, but to, to pick a side. And in that room, in that meeting, in that moment, he stood up for their work and stood up for what they were finding not even yeah. necessarily stood up for Leary, but but stood up for the truth of what they were finding or the apparent truth of what they were finding. And uh, and I, I think at that point, like the sort of the cards were dealt then, like there were, his life was never going to be the same <laughs> at that point. Wasn't it? Um, so the, the Harvard Psychedelic Club, you read the Harvard Psychedelic Club? Yeah. It's, uh, it, it, so wasn't it? It was Andrew Wilde who basically betrayed them all. Right. Didn't Andrew Wilde basically report the entire thing. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> That, that guy's that guy's career path and again you know i can't he makes his choices and and but the fact that where he went on to it's uh it's interesting um, it's very interesting so where where in where in brooklyn were you uh, i lived all over brooklyn i lived i moved to williamsburg when i uh, back when williamsburg was really 
cool and not not basically MTV stro uh, stroller MTV slope whatever we want whatever people call it um, back in the late 90s um, early 2000s um, lived in lived in Williamsburg and then um, moved out to Crown Heights and Prospect Heights and Windsor Terrace and lived in Bay Ridge for a second oh, I love Bay Ridge yeah it's cool it's, it's still legit out there but still like actually not you know it's real Brooklyn, Brooklyn. yeah it's, Brooklyn. it's real Brooklyn yeah 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 and then, uh, and Prospect Heights was actually still kind of that way when I lived there, but I'm sure it's completely, you know, been taken over by whatever, you know, whatever the gentrification, you know. Yeah, I'm sure happened. Windsor Terrace too, same thing. Like that was a great, great neighborhood 15, 20 years ago. I'm sure it's overrun at this point. Um, That's it. Like a lot of the cool places, like the, you know, what's the place that, that my friend Jim and I love, used to love to go to, a place called Pharrell's. In oh, Windsor. I know. For, yeah, yeah, I know. Styrofoam beer, the big styrofoam bar, beer. Yeah. <laughs> Not anymore. Great. It's gone. Not allowed to do that there. What? Yeah, I guess there's new pop. I guess I guess because of like, some new city citywide policies about drinking beers over a certain size limit. I don't know, <laughs> but uh... <laughs> over a certain size limit. The fact that it was large and portable and in in a to go cup. <laughs> Very portable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that place was that place was terrific. Uh, I was in Carroll Gardens for a long time, so I was sort of. I always tell people I, I'm gentrifier one. When I move into your neighborhood, you know that you're either going to get pushed out or your property level is going to go up. I, I did that to the Lower East Side. I did it to the East Village. I did it to Carroll Gardens. I was in the process of doing it to Astoria um, oh, man. When, the, when I was run out of town into Seattle. But um, And where in Connecticut are you from? I'm from uh, the Danbury area. Uh, so southwestern Connecticut, a little town called Brookfield, which is coincidentally, it's like a, the town above Sandy Hook. Um, so I'm, I'm, I seem to be moving to places or from places where these mass shootings happen, which is very, very interesting. Um, but yeah, uh, Connecticut, my parents are both from New York. So I went to, I went to New York schools, um, at the SUNY Albany. Um, and, uh, I've always just resonated very deeply with New York, with, with the New York state mindset, Connecticut. I hate to, I hate to kind of give into like a cliche, but Connecticut really is what, what people say it is. It's very stuck up. I mean, at least where I'm from. It's got a lot, you know, there's, there, it's the place where there's no accent, but there's also really no, no backbone or personality. So, um, I, uh, I'm, I was very happy to kind of go, I grew up like 10 minutes, 10 minutes from the border of New York state. So I was very happy to basically just take off after I turned 18. Um, so yeah, diehard New York Knicks fan. They're actually rocking this year. Diehard New York Jets fan. Um, oh. That's oh, tough. Let's, oh. let's not go there. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I'm from Hamden, so I'm also a... Oh, so you know. I know. Are you a Pats? Does that mean that you're a Pats fan? No. I, I tell people I lived on the Mason-Dixon line, basically, and houses were divided, and it was, you know, father against son and brother against brother. So it was basically, you had the Red Sox and the Yankees, you had the Patriots and the Giants, and then you had, you know, the weirdos who liked the Jets and the Mets, but we... Uh, <laughs> Those are always the kids we picked on, but, um, but yeah, so I, I, uh, early, early, early in my life, I was a Red Sox fan, but, um, Thurman Munson turned me and all my friends into Yankee fans. I mean, he was like our hero. Um, and I sort of grew up in that giants era of, you know, like for me, football peaked for me with Bill Parcells and Phil oh, yeah. and all that. And, um, so I, and I was kind of out of football by the time the Patriots rise came, um, the, the only Patriots game I saw in person was at the old Sullivan stadium. And uh, I had those seats way up in the back. Like, I think there was nobody behind me basically. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so yeah, I, I, you know, I don't have much. Um, I was going to say, I don't have much nostalgia for Connecticut. That's not entirely right. Um, but it's, it's, it's less about Connecticut and more about new England. 
you know, there's yeah. a few times a year, I would say from like maybe Labor Day or Columbus Day through the holidays, I get real, I get that call for the Northeast. Oh, it's just, you know, that crisp weather and um, the smell. The um, leaves, the leaves, the leaves get me. I, I want to go back. I mean, there's no, you grew up in that and you, you think that that's everywhere and then you move anywhere else in the world, really. And you're like, oh, they, nobody has, nobody has an October or November. Like we have an October or November, you know, yeah. in New England. The big thing that, that, that I find sort of most difficult is really how stark um, the impact of climate change is out there. You know, the last 10 or 15 years of my time out there, we would either have no winter or we'd have the worst winter on record. And we'd have incredibly unbearable summers like the it just the, it got so extreme. And so it's this weird pocket out here in the Pacific Northwest where um, I hate to say it this way, but climate change has sort of um, it's actually moderated the weather a little bit. Right. The, the rainy season isn't as intense. The summers are beautiful. There's this weird is a weird pocket um, uh, where uh, people joke about like climate change is pretty good in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> well, Seattle's best kept secret has got the most it has the most amazing summers on the I mean that I've ever experienced I mean summer's like it's the most beautiful time of year it's like 70 degrees perfect it's like people think that Seattle and, and just the up the north the, the northwest is all rainy and gray all the time but it's really not I mean it's yeah. it is but I mean there's some really amazing seasons yeah I've, I've developed this lifestyle fantasy of being um of, of being in New York or the northeast from again, around Columbus Day through through New Year's, really. Mm -hmm. And then going to Hawaii from January till Memorial Day and then coming to Seattle for Memorial Day through uh, Labor Day. And that would be my that would be ideal. Just chase that 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 beautiful weather. Um, and even Hawaii might be too much for me at that point. Maybe I'll just go to Southern California or something. But that's sort of the that's the lifestyle dream. I love that. That's yeah, it's not that's not a bad it's not a bad aspiration. I have to ask when when you were talking about um, I first became aware of your work through uh, through the film through Sacred Science through through that film, and um, I have to be honest, I don't remember if you if you discussed this issue, but knowing what you know about the cultures and just the impact of you know of film in our society and um, and what I could only call like for certain people, like the titillation of that topic, right? Like it's, it's, it's drugs. It's, it's psychedelic, you know, it's, it's got that, that loaded thing for a lot of people on their, you know, on their way into the topic. Were you, were you concerned or did you have to wrestle with the idea of like, I'm shining a light on these people and, and what, what's a potential outcome of this? And, and was there a potential outcome that you, was there any burden in that for you? Yeah, uh, there was, I, 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 so I, I wrote a book about it too. I mean, I, I got, a, I wrote, I wrote a book called the sacred science came out a couple of years ago and it's sort of about this. It's like when you go down there and you work with these cultures, you start realizing very quickly that a lot of these things can be done anywhere. You don't need to go and make, and, you know, make a footprint on these people. Um, so yeah, I did getting into it. Uh, I, I probably was a little bit naive about it, you know, as I started, pre, we started pre-production on that in 2008, 2009. And I think that I was more on this healing path. I was just trying to understand how, how far down the rabbit hole goes, you know, because I, I started talking, you know, once I healed myself, I started talking to people in the natural health world, all these different gurus. 
And it just, I kept on, cause I'm, you know, we were making a couple other films where, you know, kind of like the secret and those kinds of things where you kind of just see flashes. It's basically talking cat films are my least favorite types of films that I was, you know, I was making those back then. Um, and you ask these, you ask these people, you know, well, who's your teacher? And I kept on getting similar answers where you ask the person who was at the top of their game, who taught them. And they'd point to like some, some elder somewhere, whether it was a male or female or whether they're from India, whether they're from the Amazon. But I started getting fascinated by this. I'm like, wait, so the people that are on screen are these like, you know, these, these middle-aged white people who are sort of, sort of like these transformed individuals that are talking like they, they're the ones who know this stuff and they're, they're, the, or, they're the originators of this knowledge. But really, really it's these people in these other areas, uh, particularly, and th coincidentally, these are areas that we tend to be exploiting like crazy for, for their natural resources and pretty much squashing out the culture. So for me, it was a fascination when I first got, first started off trying to understand how I could highlight and champion these people. And, and, and also, I mean, it's a, what, an, what an amazing combo. Like these people have, have stuff to offer the world that could heal us. Like they, you know, going back to that stat, now there's over a hundred thousand species of medic potentially medicinal plants in the jungle, less than 5% have been studied. Why? I don't know. Then no one can really answer that question very well. Um, a lot of our cures come from there, come from those plants. Well, why don't I champion these people and let them be the ones who benefit from this knowledge? And that was the idea going in. But then you get down there and you realize like it's going to, it would take an entire sea change, you know, for the world to respect these people. And it would take an entire sea change in terms of their own, the, these people's culture to even want to bother with being recognized on the world stage. They don't want that. You know, that's not how it works. So, um, yes, I went down there thinking one thing and then left there realizing, okay, um, I need to make sure that I, I encourage people who watch my films and who read the book um, to do this in their own neck of the woods. So a lot of our messaging for the last seven or eight, seven years, I'd say that no, probably five years has been, Hey, here's what they do in Egypt. This is, this, this is, this is this ancient Egyptian practice. It's from, you know, 2000 BC. Um, here's how you can recreate it in your own house. Like, you know, mm. like, for example, we could even go as, as far as to talk about the plant medicines, ayahuasca is two plants that grow on the, grow on the Amazon. It's chacruna. It's a leaf that grows over here. And it's the Banisteriopsis capi, which is the vine that grows over here. Now, the fact that they live hundred miles away from each other, and there's a sea of over 40,000 species of plants between them. And somehow these guys knew to take that and combine it with that. Like that'll blow your, try to investigate that one. Like that, that's a that whole was, other podcast. There, yeah. There's yeah. no way to do that. There's no way that that's possible, even with trial and error, but that's what it is. These, these two plants, you boil them together, you get the psychoactive compound. Um, but what it really comes down to is an MAO inhibitor and a DMT rich plant. So, so it, um, uh, the, the, the vine, the Banisteriopsis capi is, 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 is um, a bit, has a uh, MAO inhibitor in it. And the Chacruna leaf has, is, is one of the most DMT rich plants on the planet. So combine those two, you inhibit your body, your, your saliva's ability to break down DMT. So you get a full on dose of DMT delivered to you and you have this crazy um, an amazing transformative experience. Well, you can find other combos like that anywhere. Like there's, there, there's plenty of different plants that do that. So people are starting to find those up here and starting to find them in Europe and starting to find them in Africa. So a lot of what we're now that's from the plant medicine perspective, but just from like any type of, of, of spiritual ritual that you'll find in the Amazon, you could find it somewhere else. So a lot of what we've been doing is trying to use the films that we make uh, uses a weird word, but, you know, have them be the, the calling card that gets you excited. It's not going to be that excited if I say I took eight people to New Jersey and we went to, we went to a place, you know, we went to a yoga studio and we did some yoga and also drank some ayahuasca and everyone had a good time. 
like to get people to actually watch the movie it's like we just did something crazy like we should you should hear about the next one we're gonna be doing it out in siberia pretty soon and that's gonna be like again like i like to have it be like something that seems crazy and scary and risky and like i can't believe people would do that at, but then distill it down to things that you can do i mean these almost always all my films and it's a little bit cheesy i guess in a way they always have takeaways it's always kind of like you know at the end of the gi joe uh cartoon it's like you know what did you learn well knowing's half the battle well i mean i kind of try to do that at the end of the film i want to leave the person with something to take away from it and so what we're what we're trying to do with the film is take them to some place that's exotic have uh, have the people go through something that's that's um that's challenging and watch transformation and at the end be like listen you saw this here you don't need to go here you can recreate this and you can find people who do this near you so it's I'm sure plenty of people could poke holes in that, that approach and be like, Hey, why are you even going there in the first place? You're drawing attention to these places. But the reality is, man, these places are already getting attention. They're already getting plenty of people who are going there to exploit them, no matter what, where there's money, as I'm sure, you know, and have seen in your own career where there's money to be made, there are people who would do just about anything to make it. And that's how it is in every one of these regions. So for us, it's like, hopefully what we're doing is raising awareness and also turning people around who might spend money and time to go, put a footprint somewhere and telling them you can do this in your own neck of the woods. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I appreciate we're, we're sort of reaching the end of our time here. I had two other quick questions I wanted to ask you. Um, one is uh, where do you see some real opportunity in terms of sort of societal, like, you know, I, I, for applications of some of the sacred science and, and more natural medicine in terms of, some of the real problems that are, that, that have, that are plaguing us, whether that's, you know, behavioral issues that, you know, young people are having, or, you know, this emergence of autism or ADHD, like, are there, are there real opportunities to, to, to apply this knowledge to specific pathologies that people are experiencing sort of, it seems in increasing numbers these days. And two, um, have you seen anything throughout the pandemic? Like, have you seen applications throughout the pandemic um, of this? Or does this, does the pandemic fall more into what you said earlier of like, this is like emergency, this is, this is the time for emergency medicine, not the time for more subtle um, restorative cures. I, I wonder if you could address either or both of those. I'm gonna try to, I'm trying to do this in three minutes here. Um, uh, so I, I'd say the one thing I'll, uh, from these cultures that I would say seems like a blanket, um, therapy for a lot of the illnesses that seem to be plaguing our modern civilization, like ADHD, autism, um, a lot of, a lot of cognitive um, disorders that seem to be, you know, that seem to know, no no concrete age range um, is community and connection. I mean, I think that every one of these, every one of these cultures that we work with and going back to earlier in our conversation, most of them are, are matriarchal societies that, um, that are very connected to each other, very connected mm -hmm. to the, to nature. Um, that's that in and of itself is, is something that you see work wonders. I mean, nature therapy is actually a thing. Nature therapy for ADHD, you know, nature therapy for autism, um, equine therapy for, for autism, um, connection to other creatures, connection to the world, connection to a planet that's sitting here under your feet, waiting for you to acknowledge it as opposed to sitting in your basement on your, with your fancy studio set up, you know, talking on zoom. I mean, I, obviously this is a wonderful conversation, but um, I mean, it, the world's waiting for you to engage with it. And that's what these cultures do. And when you, and, and people are starting to see, and this is not, this is not like, you know, 
theory. You, you can find Harvard studies on nature therapy. You know, you could find Harvard studies on equine therapy and its benefits for autism. Um, there's a great film on that actually called The Horse Boy. Um, and probably Harvard studies on sort of a lot of these things as diseases of alienation or isolation. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, I talk about the crazy social media documentaries that are out there now, social, social uh, dilemma and those just basically feeding into that. So I think that one thing, the one thing I'd take, the one bit of nectar, you know, just to offer in, in these closing minutes from these cultures is just connection. Um, and also that, you know, that talk that goes into um, our relationship to our family as well. Like up here in the, up here in the, in the United States, I don't know about your family, but it's sort of champion to ship your elders down to Florida to kind of retire and live and die down there. Um, while you, the mom and the dad both work full time and and try to be somebody, and then the kids stay home and they they you know you have, you have latchkey kids. Basically, every one of my friends in Connecticut, I think, probably is like one of the you know poster states for this latchkey children. So we ship our elders down to down to Florida. We ourselves get so sucked into the other distractions and sparkly objects of our own potential you know glamour and glitz of a career path, and our children are left to sort of fend for themselves. We look, we, you know, we look at these other cultures, you go down to South America, Central America, where we spend a lot of time. And it's very tempting for, for a person who comes from privilege up here to be like, oh, how that's so sad in Honduras. I can't believe San, San Pedro Sula. Do you see those families? There's at least five generations living under the same roof. Can you believe that? Could you imagine how terrible that would be? Those families are extremely healthy. You know, those kids have role models up the wazoo, up and down the ladder, um, because they're so connected. They haven't left each other. They, they've actually kept together as a, as a family. Um, so I think there's something to that that we've forgotten about. We've championed this idea of separation and isolation up here. And it's only, it only makes sense that when you do that environmentally, you're going to see disease mentally and physically um, as a result of it. The one last thing about, um, about the current pandemic, I would just say it's interesting that there has been so little, and I don't want to get political whatsoever here, but I think this is pretty concrete. It's interesting that boosting our immune system hasn't natural ways of boosting our immune system. Haven't been, hasn't been front and center. Like, you know, I, it's starting to be like, you're starting to hear about vitamin D and the importance of that. You're starting to hear about the role of your micro, the human microbiome, the trillions of my, the trillions of microbes in your gut that basically are your immune system and how to take care of those better. Um, that's all I, I think that in general, I think we're, I think that, you know, we're in this and we have to, we have to sort of, it's, it's one of those amazing life challenges that hopefully we can learn, we can glean some wisdom from, like we were talking about earlier, but I do think that there's room for natural medicine here. I'm not saying natural medicine is going to cure COVID, but there is, there are ways to boost your immune system. And there are things that you can do to keep yourself resilient, but I don't think are really being talked about too much in the, in the mainstream media. Well, I, uh, I think we, we could probably do another hour just exploring <laughs> that topic um, and providing resources for people. But um, I'd say, I really appreciate your time. It's been great to get to know you and to, and to learn about your work and uh I think our audience will enjoy hearing this. So thank you. Happy to be here. All this right. Great. Thank you so much, Nick Polizzi. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week. And in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch.